Welcome to Blind Spots, a podcast where we're helping you fill the gap between what you want to do with your money and what you actually do. We are professional investors, writers, and financial planners helping you navigate the complexities of finance to optimize what you can control and cut out the rest. Join your host, Nick Shermans and Aaron Varghese, as we discuss the questions and nuances surrounding everyday money management. Greetings, everyone. We are back with Happy Half Hour with Toby and Nick. Today is Tuesday, February 13th. Toby, did you have a, a rooting interest in the Super Bowl? I did not. How's that for an answer? I was just hoping for a good game, and we got that. And so I enjoyed uh, watching the game with my family. How about you? I did not have a dog in the fight. I was with a group of friends watching the game, and I, I just got sucked into that thing. It was very, very um, entertaining battle between two really good teams, and it came down to the best quarterback on planet Earth in a two-minute drill. So what more could you ask for? So we've got some questions from Toby. I'm going to throw out some random questions, maybe life-related, maybe market-related. Certainly no shortage of topics to talk about. What's interesting to me, when I'm looking at the market, everyone's still talking about some of these 2023 themes where narrow breadth, tech leading the way, bonds are choppy, the Fed might cut, they might not cut. And when you zoom out and look at history, I think any time, and I've said this in the past, but it's, it's true, any time the market expects one thing and the Fed is saying another, they're not, they're not, speaking, the same, uh, not speaking the same language on rates, you get some of these choppy bouts. But the market seems to have shrugged a lot of that off. I, I mean, we're at all-time highs. A lot of people get scared of that. But I think in a normal year when the market is hitting all-time highs, it hits it like 25 times. So for those people that are weary about all-time highs, that's, that's, a, that's a normal function of markets. So I'll jump off from there. When you see the markets, which have had a pretty nice run since October, I think the S&P is up close to 20% since October. How do you think about going forward do you think hey maybe we're due for a breather maybe we're you know due to digest that gain hey maybe we're due to go the other way or do you just don't think about that and just continue to follow your process and and let the market do what it's going to do and we have a framework to adjust there's some trend and momentum investors that that preach that all-time highs are not something to be fearful of they're to be leaned into and there's empirical evidence to suggest that higher prices can equal more higher prices. Now, I'm not saying markets can't take a breather. What I'm saying is when stocks do well, they tend to keep doing well. Markets tend to be trend heavy, which is why a lot of traders, including pure portfolios, even though we're not trading intraday swings and all those things, there, there is some element that uh, trend is your friend. And what ends up happening is people that have been sitting out, they see the markets going up. That's That's the worst feeling ever. So some say why trend works is you get a bit of... FOMO and people chasing performance, which you have to be careful about. I mean, some of these hot themes that we've seen in 2021, like the Kathy Wood ARC fund, I, I chuckled. I'm sure you saw this report that ARC is the number one value destroying fund company out there. And if you go back a couple of years, Kathy Wood was on the cover of Time Magazine and Bloomberg. She, like she was a rock star, but she ended up piling money into the frothiest speculative names at the market peak. And a lot of her investors, a lot of performance chasers ended up getting smashed. So it's a good question because I do get questions from clients about, you know, whether it's AI today or it was the Magnificent Seven last year. And, hey, why, why don't we invest more money in 
the areas that are working, NVIDIA, for example, and some of the AI-related companies. Uh, how do you communicate with your folks to, you know, tell them that they do, they are invested in those companies, but chasing that performance at this point in the in the cycle probably doesn't uh, doesn't always end well. And that's pretty much what I would say. If if everybody's talking about something, if something is deemed easy, that might be the time to pump the brakes a little bit. And again, I'm not saying you can't have exposure to those names, but I'm big on the risk management side, managing your position sizing, not getting carried away in a certain theme or name. Because most people, when they end up doing that, like they they they, they keep shoveling money into what's worked. Oftentimes, they're taking a lot more risk than they set out. And when the cycle turns, you know, a lot of these high flyers you know, again, we're down 20 to 60% in 2022. So, you know, if you're a 30 something trader, that's fine. If you're about to retire or, you know, you're living off your portfolio, you, you need to look through a risk management lens first. And then the other thing I'll say about, about this market environment, if, if you're a long-term investor and you're looking out five, seven to 10 years, it's not like everything has gone up together. There's pockets of value out there. I mean, I'm looking at small cap value, which if you look at the last 80 years, one of the best performing asset classes, you know, you layer in trend and momentum, that's been proven to work. Small cap value is one of the worst performing asset classes this year. So, you know, again, if you if you zoom out, have a long-term view, you can take some calculated risks here that that might be a favorable trade from a risk return standpoint. And, and talk a little bit about the approach that we do from time to time with certain clients, kind of the core satellite approach, where if folks have a particular opinion or a particular theme or stock that they want to invest in, um, talk about you know how we've done that with some of our clients as a way to retain the focus on the core, but allow mm -hmm. them to express those views um, that they have. Yeah, and I think there's this narrative out there that that people shouldn't speculate, they shouldn't express their active views, and I and I believe the opposite. So a lot of investors, a lot of our clients are very smart people that that we're good at something, okay? And I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing to carve out five, ten percent of your investable assets and speculate to set up a slot, a side trading account where where you can do your own research, express your active views, trade and speculate. I call it scratching the degenerate itch that we all have from time to time, but that core portfolio uh, should be should be at arm's length, meaning you should have a process or someone else managing it for you because mistakes get real as the dollar amount grows, and emotions, blind spots, biases are all part of every human being's makeup, and we just need to be mindful of those as well. Is it fair to say that the approach that we follow, highly diversified, low cost can almost be somewhat boring. I mean, the market's going to vacillate and fluctuate as it will, but I think we're, we're playing for the long term. We're playing for, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint type of an approach. And, and so the core portfolio is invested that way and certain parts of the portfolio will do well in a given time frame, and other parts of the portfolio may lag, but overall we're looking to move the move the needle forward over the long term using our investment approach. Is that a fair characterization or would you say it differently? I'm glad you brought this up because I think there's a, a perception that investing should be exciting and it should be get your heart racing and it's in, you know, we're consuming CNBC and they've got all these graphics, hot money, fast money. Good investing should be absolutely boring. It sh it's not exciting. 
Good investing, the way I define it, is earning reasonable returns as consistently and as long as you can. That's that's what good investing is. And if you want to swing for the fences and market time, again, carve out a small position of your net worth to do that. But good investing should be very much boring. I mean, you should have a framework to make decisions. You should build a portfolio that reflects the way that you feel about risk. And after that, it's fine to have a, a process for dialing risk up and down, but it should not be this hot money, chasing the next fad, jumping in and out, you know, listening to your friend, how he made 40% on a stock and trying to, trying to replicate that yourself. That's, that's not what uh, best serves most people. Okay. So in these happy half hour podcasts, uh, we've got a couple of corners that we like to, to revisit every time. One of them is kind of asset class corner. So we'll take a particular asset class and get your perspective on it, what you're thinking about it, what you've read on it recently. Given that we've done a lot of uh, content recently on Bitcoin, maybe you can give an update on how you're seeing Bitcoin now that the ETF has been approved and then whether Bitcoin will have a place in pure portfolios, you know, diversified uh, asset allocation moving forward for certain clients. That sounds like entrapment. So Bitcoin, uh, the ETF was approved, what, like a month ago? Yep. And something, in, something interesting happened. And it's not so interesting if you've been following markets. And I think they kind of ebb and flow. But Bitcoin, in anticipation of the ETF, price really ramped up. It was close to like 50000 a coin, a Bitcoin. Once it was approved, the price sold off to, I think, like 39000 a Bitcoin. Now it's kind of stabilized back up. And what you saw was a lot of competition within the ETFs. And then prior to the ETF being approved, there, there was a Bitcoin trust that had a lot of early Bitcoin investors in that trust. And it was like an ETF, but not quite. That started to unwind because the expense ratio from that original Bitcoin trust was like almost 2%. So a lot of Bitcoin sold off and has been flowing to more friendly places. So I caught, that's caused some disruption in the price. But now it's stabilizing. To, to answer your second question, and I've been saying this for years, it's only a matter of time between Bitcoin is a mainstream asset in institutional portfolios that people use to pay for goods and services. And it's starting to happen. Bitcoin is certainly following uh, the long-term thesis, the long-term narrative on, on many levels. The next phase is adoption. And I think with the Bitcoin ETF, that's a huge step, not only in institutional adoption, but retail adoption. And and Bitcoin, you know, is new relative to stocks and bonds, but, you know, maybe talk a little bit about Bitcoin and more specifically, you know, our journey at Pure with cryptocurrency. It's something that you've been following and, and watching for some time. So maybe talk a little bit about that and, and how we decide, you know, whether or not to include that, you know, in portfolios moving forward. So my original journey with digital assets and pure portfolio started around 2017, where we were trying to set up a partnership. Well, we did actually set up a partnership with the first cryptocurrency robo-advisor. Um, they, they ran into some funding issues, and it never got off the ground. But the genesis of this is I've been interested in this in some time. Now, the counter to it and why people have told me to calm down here and pump the brakes is – the, the SEC has been not very clear about what digital assets actually are. Is it property? Is it a security? Does it fall under the rules of a publicly traded company who can offer digital assets? So it really was the Wild West. And again, all of this 
journey from early days to the SEC approving an ETF are part of a emerging asset classes journey to becoming a legit asset class. Gold went through the same kind of arc. Again, gold is different, but Bitcoin and digital assets are following the same journey. So I've been interested in this personally for 10 years at the firm level for six years due to compliance. Um, we are close to offering something now. We've co been communicating it with, with clients, but it, we want to make sure we cover our basis and do it right. Yeah. And Bitcoin is a, a great example of the old adage that that you know price follows sentiment uh and sentiment is driven by price meaning that when the price is low on bitcoin nobody's interested nobody wants to buy it nobody wants to talk about it and when the price spikes up and it hits the evening news or hits cnbc now all of a sudden people want to know hey maybe i need to put that in my portfolio and so as we look at uh look at potentially adding bitcoin to certain portfolios moving forward you know i think we will do it prudently and do it appropriately and make sure that the clients understand this new asset class and and make sure that they're comfortable you know with uh, including it moving forward the last thing i'll say is the partnership that we put in place we spent a lot of time and effort to put that partnership in place several years ago and never ended up having any clients go down that path because price had backed off by that point so yeah and and, and one thing i'll add on that so back to my comment about tech stocks you have to be very mindful of bitcoin and any digital asset and their sizing in your portfolio i mean how big of a position that that you build like me personally i'm i'm very mindful about my own personal exposure and and i would not go above 10 percent in any digital asset in relation to my investable asset that's just me at pure we'll probably do a much smaller asset allocation or much smaller allocation to bitcoin think one, two, or 3%. And again, we'll, we'll overlay our rules. So when Bitcoin is doing well, ideally we would own a little bit more. When Bitcoin is doing poorly, we would own a little bit less or even none at all. So again, make sure you're sensitive on position sizing. Make sure you have a framework for managing risk. It's not, oh, Bitcoin's up. I want to buy a slug of Bitcoin today. Like that's, that's not an effective process. Oh, good stuff. That makes sense. Yeah. What's your, okay. If you are feeling stressed and need a place to think like what's your go-to approach my approach and you're probably going to laugh at this but i'll say it anyways um in the last year i've started uh going and doing uh saunas and so and i find if you have an hour or 45 minutes in a sauna it's a great place to think there's nobody in there you can have it be dark you can have it be light you can but you can really you know, there's no cell phones, there's no, you know, you can really uh, mm -hmm. get in touch with your, your thoughts. So I do some good thinking in there. The challenge is as I come up with things while I'm in there. I have to remember them when I get out of the sauna and make sure that I capture them. But that's a place that I do some thinking. I also, I'm trying to, to uh, walk a little more, be a little more active uh, in 2024. And walking is a great way to to kind of get in touch with your thoughts and kind of think through mm -hmm. things that you might be wrestling with from time to time. So those are two spots for me. How about you? A couple comments there. One, a big fan of the sauna steam room, but I, I haven't done it in a while, but I used to do it all the time. That is vastly underrated, the steam room. The drawback you have to look out for is the person in there that's stretching or grunting and it's pretty close quarters, so that might be uncomfortable. I'm a big fan of the gym, gym etiquette guy, so making sure that you're mindful of everybody. So that, But that's a different conversation. Second thing on walks, I heard someone say this, and I, I think it's brilliant. No one ever felt worse after going for an outside walk. 
right? So I think right. in a in a time where our attention is pulled and stretched, sometimes just putting the technology down and going for a walk, very simple but so effective, and you oftentimes feel much better. Two comments there. One, the sauna place I go to is you have your own room. Perfect. So you have your own sauna, so you don't have to worry about somebody coming in. I, I still remember being at a, a health club and being in a sauna, and you're right, some people don't necessarily follow the rules. And I remember one gentleman in particular, I think he was you know, just strolling around the locker room, multiple towels on his person, but none of them where they needed to be, if, mm. if, you, if you get my drift. So That's a bold um, play. It is a bold play. And the other thing that I should add to that is typically I'll do the sauna and then a cold plunge afterwards. And the cold plunge is, is uh, I'm not going to pound the table, but it's really, um, you come out of it feeling very refreshed, very clear, very focused uh, after going through, you know, three, four minutes in a cold plunge. Uh, so I tend to do those in tandem and, and that's a good recharge and refresh for me once a week or so. So the cold plunge and the cold shower are kind of all the personal health rage. I get the cold plunge. There's no way in hell in February when I wake up at 5 a.m. that I'm taking a cold shower. There's just no way. I get it. I get it. Okay. So I've got one for you. So we also, the other corner that we do from time to time is uh, investor corner. And I'm going to zag a little bit on the investor corner. Typically, this is where we'll identify a specific investor category and then have you comment on what you think those people should be thinking about. We're going to zag a little bit this time. We've got taxes are starting to become front and center coming up uh, here in the next couple of months. Uh, what's your best advice for investors in terms of how they should think about taxes? Uh, should it be their primary focus? Should it be an afterthought? You know, What's your thought in terms of planning around taxes and how folks should think about that? I'm big on optimizing the things you can control and taxes are certainly at or near the top of the list. So making sure you're doing everything, or if you're working with an advisor, they're doing everything to help mitigate taxes. It's, it's the worst thing ever when, when you're paying taxes on something that's controllable, like you can't control what the market does, but if you own a bunch of mutual funds in a taxable account, like you're, you're lighting money on fire every year. If you're not doing tax loss harvesting at the end of the year, you're lighting money on fire. If you have a concentration in an individual stock and you're just selling it and throwing your hands up and saying, hey, I guess I'll pay the taxes, you're probably lighting money on fire. So there are things that we can do uh, from a direct tax standpoint and then asset location is a big one too. And I kind of hinted at that where you – if, if you have a Roth account, an IRA, and a joint taxable account, say an after-tax account, an account you've already paid taxes on the money, you have to be very intentional where you own certain assets and what type of account, right? Like there's, there's assets that I would not own in a taxable account, that I would only own in an IRA or only own in a Roth. There's various risk profiles that I would uh, only have in a Roth and maybe I wouldn't have in an after-tax account. So – there are things that you can do, and at Peer, we have a process for helping people mitigate taxes. And there's certain things that you can do just to help make your life easier. Like we meet a lot of prospective clients with like five different taxable accounts at five different advisors, or you know, they're, they, they have all these accounts scattered. Well, you're, you're doing five different 1099s. It's really hard to see where you're perhaps 
have tax drag or lighting money on fire from a tax standpoint. It's hard to tell how much risk you're taking. We also see a lot of people invest in exotic alternative assets that produce K-1s and make your taxes a nightmare. And again, that's fine if you're in your 50s and 60s and can manage it. But when most people retire, they don't want to be chasing down tax statements and they don't want to create this huge mess at the end of the year. So my my overarching advice is just as you get older, as you retire and, you, and your focus has shifted to doing other things, simplify. Simplify, make your life, make your CPA's life easier. Yeah. I always like to caution folks that we're, we're not tax advisors, but there's a lot of planning that we can do within portfolios and a lot of work that we do do throughout the year. You mentioned tax loss harvesting, asset location that we can do to help mitigate folks' tax burden. Um, the other thing I would add in there is as people get older and as their lives get busier, Finding a good CPA is a really um, a bit of a, a life hack. Someone that all you need to do is compile your information in a stack, deliver it to them, and they take it from there. Uh, I still have uh, folks that I work with that do their own taxes, and and I, you know, encourage them to find a CPA to to take that off their hands because they'll pull their hair out for you know for the entire month of of March and April trying to get this thing done and gather everything. And I'm just not sure it's the, the best use of their time. So um, that's another piece of advice I'd throw in there. If you get to a point where your situation's a little more complex, find a good CPA and take that burden uh, off your hands with someone that does that on a daily basis. Okay, you got another one for me? I've got one more for you. I'm short on questions today. So let's just okay. go with yours and then you answer your questions too, because I think you're asking me so you can answer. Right. That's not how I do it, but uh, I'll be prepared to answer after you answer yours. Well, uh, I, so I don't mean is... to come off selfish I, because usually like I'm very mindful socially when someone's asking me a bunch of questions, I want to ask them questions. I'm failing in that and I know it. So go ahead. Sorry. So we just had the Super Bowl. Yep. What is your favorite sport to follow throughout the year? I know you like to follow several sports. What is the one that is your ideal sport to follow? throughout the year that you get the most enjoyment out of sitting down either with the kids or by yourself and, and watching? Mm. I've already kind of ranted about this, but it used to be college football. I used to really enjoy that. I've enjoyed it less and less and less as the years go by, as the sport destroys itself from within. I'll still pay, I still pay attention to Washington State. We've got a really good basketball team this year. It looks like they're going to make the tournament. Uh, really plugged into the football team, but that's slowly moving down the list. Uh, I really like NBA basketball. I'm a basketball junkie. That was my first love. I'm a Blazer fan. Uh, I watch parts of most every game. I, it's been a long time since I've sat and watched a game from start to finish. But I'd probably say college football and basketball. And then golf, too. I'm, I'm always checking in to see who's playing well and you know watching the Sunday finishes on the golf tournament. I think that's great. How about you? Same, same question for you. Uh, again, I like to follow multiple sports, so I enjoy watching uh, NFL football, college football. I enjoyed watching this year, notwithstanding the challenges that may be present moving forward. The the one sport that my wife and I like to watch together is, is soccer. And mm -hmm. I used to think soccer was a, a little bit on the boring side, but I've come to really enjoy watching soccer, whether it's the Timbers and MLS soccer, or whether it's you know, some of the European teams in the Premier League, but uh, we, we like to go to the games, but we also like to watch them. And there really is a, it's going to sound cliche, but it really is a beauty to the game if you understand it and follow it. And uh, so we enjoy watching the soccer. 
To me, and I appreciate soccer as well. To me, there's such a gap, and maybe you can comment on this, between watching a Premier League game and then watching the MLS. Like, it seems like a different sport to me. It, it, it really is. Uh, you know, I think Premier League is the best or pretty darn close to the best league in the world uh, with the best players in the world, the most money in the world. Um, but but MLS is, you know, I'll say closing the gap. It's a hell of a gap. So it's going to take them a while to get there. But MLS has kind of raised the level of their game in the last three, four years. And a lot more money is being spent there. Messi uh, came and joined the league, and that's gotten a lot more visibility around the world. So I would agree there's definitely a, a discrepancy between the quality and level of play in MLS versus uh, Premier League. But MLS is still in some ways more exciting because it's more of a crapshoot than, hey, it's Man City playing somebody, and you know that Man City eventually is going right. to get three, four goals and win comfortably. Uh, MLS, you kind of it's a little bit more of a of a wild card outcome. So I enjoy that aspect as well. So okay, well that's a good jump off spot. We're at almost thirty minutes. This is happy half hour. We can't go over thirty. So I hope you enjoyed this. Feel free to shoot us a note at insight at pureportfolios dot com with any questions, feedback, insults for Toby. We'll see you next time. Thanks Cheers. for checking in. Bye bye.